only have to listen to, to know that it's that tis the season for colds and stuff. I know in the Battle family right now, Sarah and Caddy are down for the count, and I'm uh, in the, the grips of wrestling with something myself. So I, uh, if you're there, I, I certainly feel you, and Sarah and Cadman do as well. They send their greetings, though. If you have your Bible or your Bible app here today, I encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 11. Uh, we're going to be camping out there, uh, verses 25 to 30. I'm going to be reading out of the New International Version today, uh, but it's going to be up on the screen there if you would like to read there. In my opinion, the, one of the, I guess, best episodes that I ever remember watching from the TV show Seinfeld was called The Bizarro Jerry. The, the Bizarro Jerry, and in it, Elaine befriends this group that's supposed to represent the, the inverse or the opposite of Jerry's group. And so Jerry meets this group, and so he calls his counterpart Bizarro Jerry. And so he, the, Elaine was confused. She didn't understand why, what he was talking about. And it turns out there's this uh, sort of alternate universe almost that DC Comics created in the 1960s. And it takes the, this world, and it's Earth spelled backwards. I don't know how you pronounce that. But instead of a round world, it's a cube. And it's got all of the opposite people on it. So there's like Bizarro Superman, Bizarro Lois Lane, their kids. Bat Zaro, who's like the world's worst detective, things like that. Everything's, everything's backwards. So Elaine is with this group of people who represent the bizarro versions of the Seinfeld crew. So they're kind, they're generous, they're good citizens, right? All of the things that Jerry and his friends aren't. And so as Elaine is, is getting to know these people, she starts to, to feel a little bit of a rub. She doesn't feel like she, she gets with them too well, like fit with them too well. But before she can reject them, they actually reject her because in this universe, bizarro Elaine would actually be ladylike. And the real Elaine, unfortunately for her, isn't. So I think sometimes when we read through our Bible and we get to some of the things that Jesus is saying, often because it, it, it rubs up a little against, uh, rubs up a little against sometimes a, a picture that we have of Jesus in our minds. And so when we read some of Jesus's words, we start to wonder if this isn't some sort of bizarro Jesus or something like that that's talking. We start to wonder about our beliefs. And so we're continuing in our series today, and it's called Jesus Said What? And in this series, we're getting after some of these things that Jesus has said through his ministry that cause us to reflect on some of the things that we believe. I think one of the things that people often believe is that God is too busy for them. Sometimes we believe that, that God is too important for them. Or sometimes I think people believe that, that God just doesn't care about them at all. They have this picture in, a, in their mind of a God, you know, the, the old guy sitting on his porch telling kids to stay off my lawn. That, that sort of guy. He's rough around the edges, somebody that you don't want to approach or you're, you're worried about approaching, thinking maybe he might have better things to do than to talk to you. I think this is the reality for a lot of people. This is the way that they view God. And I think maybe for, for some of you, this could be how you view God. 
If that is you today, I hope that by the end of this message that you won't feel that way because nothing could be further from the truth. I hope that by the end of the message today, you'll be able to see, and this is the idea, this is the, the part we want to put our, in our back pockets, that God wants to be dependent on. God wants to be dependent on. This is something that God actually desires from us. Because whether we believe in God or not, sometimes we can still wander through this life thinking that he is unapproachable. That because he is so amazing, that he's far off, that he's distant, that he doesn't want to have anything to do with us. And this is something that we need to get out of our minds. We need to know that God wants us to come to him. God wants us to lay our troubles before him. God wants us to call out to him when we need help. God wants us to depend on him. We're going to be looking at some really incredible teaching that Jesus laid out in verses 25 to 30. So let's jump into our passage and see that. So at that time, Jesus said, and I'm just going to hit pause for a quick second and tell you what at that time or when that was, because if you read before or after, it doesn't give you a very clear picture of what it is. But what Jesus is telling people is that, or the timeline is when Jesus is receiving back some of his apostles or his disciples who have gone out before him. They've taken some of his teaching, they've taken his ability to do miracles, and he's gone out, they've gone out into various towns, and now they've come back and they're starting to report to him as to what they've experienced, the sort of welcome or not that they've received. So at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things. What are these things? These things are those same teachings that Jesus has been telling people and sending out with his disciples. It's the miracles that people have been experiencing. It's the reality of the kingdom come. These are the things that Jesus is talking about. So he says, because, Father, you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, and you reveal them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you are pleased to do. This is what you are pleased to do. So we really get this impression that God's doing what he wants. This is his plan for how things are supposed to go. The first thing that we note, though, as we look at verses 25 and 26, is that Jesus is praying. He starts out by praying and thanking his Father. And so this really speaks to the intimacy of their relationship. It's giving us a little bit of a glimpse at the relationship that they had. It's very personal. And so he starts off by calling him, addressing him as father. But just in case somebody was wondering about whether or not that he had the credentials to be praised, because make no mistake, Jesus is giving him praise, he also gives him a title. He uses a title that is never used anywhere else. And he calls him Lord of heaven and earth. Lord of heaven and earth. And what he's talking about there is, is, is Father, you're Lord of everything. You're Lord of everything. So not only are you very personal, you're like a father to me, but you're also incredibly, incredibly powerful. So I think a lot of us, when we think of God, sometimes we get, make that mistake that he's remote, that he's distant because of that power. But nothing could be further from the truth. He is intimate. He's relational. 
And so Jesus is praising his father for hiding these things from the wise and the learned. And if you're like me, when you read that, that's the, Jesus said, what moment? Because it it doesn't make a lot of sense. This seems to be counterintuitive. Like what could Jesus possibly be suggesting here? Is he suggesting that we're supposed to be unwise and unlearned? Is that what Jesus is getting at? That we're supposed to somehow dispel with education or, or something like that? Take a wild guess how much credence I give to that suggestion. None. No credence. It's not at all what Jesus is saying. Unfortunately, though, a lot of people have taken this verse and used it as a way of saying that believers, people who follow Jesus, Christians, are supposed to be anti-intellectual. They're supposed to hate things like philosophy and, and, you know, looking at the Bible even academically. But nothing could be further, again, from the truth. Blessed are the stupid and uninformed is no verse that I have ever seen in the Bible. And I don't think you have either. The contrast Jesus is making here is one of dependence, one of dependence and one of self-sufficiency. Dependence and self-sufficiency. So in a big world, we've talked about this before, where God created all, knows all, is in all, keeps all, God is everywhere and everything, you would expect that to depend on the creator of the universe would be the right thing to do. That would be wise, wouldn't it? Don't you think? And, And... if, if you don't believe in God, then of course it sounds ridiculous, but I think we can all agree, at least in principle, that we should be able to depend or to lean on the creator of the universe to understand how to live in said universe the same way that we can depend or lean on the creator of a board game to understand how to play said board game. God is the the creator of the universe. He he set things in motion. He would understand the best way for us to be able to live inside of this universe. He would know what would make life valuable and meaningful and purposeful and, and full of incredible things, don't you think? So in a very simplistic way of looking at the Christian faith, when we look at the Bible... This is, is a way of, for us to look at how life is supposed to be let, how we're supposed to do things God's way. It acts as a rules of engagement or how life should be lived. And what is taught in this by most of 66 authors? Well, we're supposed to treat God like a father, like a, like a good father. We're supposed to depend on him and come to him and learn from him like a child would until they're about two. Please pray for me. But, but I understand that around three, it starts, to, it starts to come back again. If that's untrue, please do not wreck my pleasant fiction, but I understand that that's sort of how it works. A little more open to learning at that point, and then it stretches for however long, maybe 10 years. But then something starts to happen, right? Just like the baby teeth come out and our adult teeth come in, that, that awe, that wonder, that openness, that, that sponginess that we talk about with kids, that starts to dissipate, doesn't it? And we start to get our adult cynicism. That, that cynicism starts to creep in a little bit, and then all of a sudden things aren't as cut and dried as they were. Sadly, the thing that stands between us and God is often our best thinking is often our best thinking. 
Because cynicism is a powerful trait. I mean, it, it helps us in some ways, right? It, like if someone's trying to scam us, cynicism is a, yes, right? Yay, cynicism, if someone's trying to take us for a ride. But on the other end of it, cynicism can kill things that are important to us. Just like the adults in, in Calvin and Hobbes who think that Calvin's friend Hobbes is, is just a, a stuffed toy instead of his ferocious friend, cynicism can kill our imagination. So it can, it can stunt our ability to, to see God and it can stunt our ability to look at the world with awe and wonder. When we were down in Bolivia, it was one of the, the funnest things that I, I thought we got to do is we went and got to uh, experience a youth camp there. And I was so excited when we were going to, they said we were going to do that. And so we're walking through town and they say it's, well, it's kind of on the edge of town. And we're walking through and I thought, well, what kind of camp is going to be here in the edge of town, right? So we're walking along and then we stop at, at this guy's house and I'm thinking we're just going to stop and say hello. And they said, well, no, it's the camp's in his backyard. <laughs> and so I'm like, oh kind of a camp is in a dude's backyard like you know this must be a pretty pretty sad camp right so we go in and, and we'll walk through his driveway but then we kind of skirt around his actual little backyard and down onto this little uh, sort of cobblestone road and rode it into a tunnel and as we come out of this tunnel we're met with that with this this glorious lush jungly awesomeness it was like experiencing Bolivian Narnia I can't, you know, Narnia, the, the kids, they go through the wardrobe in the, in, the, in the children's book and they come out and there's this wonderful world. I walk through this tunnel. I'm in Kamari, Bolivia, right? Nice place, but whatever. It's Kamari, Bolivia. And I walk through this little tunnel and all of a sudden I'm in Bolivia in Narnia. It was unbelievable what we got to experience. But cynicism... Was, was killing that as an option for me. I was walking in thinking this was going to be the worst, and then I got to experience something awe-inspiring and wonderful. So who then are the wise and learned? They are those who have come to believe that they know what's best for themselves. They know what's best for themselves, and they don't need God telling them what to do. Get off my back, God. They're independent. They're their own person. They're telling you to do you, while they do they, and ain't none of y'all got to listen to anybody or believe anything that they tell you. You just do, just, just do you. So Jesus isn't pointing then to their education as much as he's talking about the little children's age or size. D.A. Carson puts it like this. He says, the contrast is between those who are self-sufficient and deem themselves wise, deem themselves wise, and those who are dependent and love to be taught. It's the key there, right? Love being taught. Because I think we laugh at the idea of being like a little child sometimes because like Tom Hanks, we just want to be big. Right? We want to grow up and we want to be, have the seat at the big person's table. We want to be in the right conversations. We want to have people respect us. And so looking at things from a child's perspective isn't appealing to us. But the, the thing is, is childlike doesn't mean childish. It doesn't mean be a little baby and, and cry and, and not eat. Well, I guess some of us still want to not eat our vegetables. That's not childish, but... But it, it, it's a posture of receptivity, isn't it? Being childlike, 
being open. We, we talk about being teachable. You guys, you guys know that? Like if someone's teachable or not, they're receptive and they're willing to learn and, and accept things and then maybe change their, 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 their life based on these things that they're learning. They're teachable. And so often when, when someone isn't teachable, then we eventually get to the point where we stop trying to teach them, right? It just kind of makes sense. It's like, well, if you don't want to learn, then fine. So this is the kind of idea that we're looking at here is, is God is looking at, at people and he's not making them unteachable and therefore they're wise and learned or making them wise and learned because they're unteachable. What he's saying is that because you've taken this posture of being wise and learned, you've rendered yourself unteachable. And so just like Burger King, he's just going to let them have it their way. Fine. He'll, he's, he's willing. God's a gentleman. He's not going to force feed what he's selling. We need to look at the world, especially how to learn and to live in it. We need to look at it with wonder and dependence on God, just like a little child would. Verse 27. All things have been committed to me by my Father, No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. One of my favorite things about, uh, or uh, things about reading the New Testament, especially reading the Gospels, is often you can have one scene, but you get a couple of different vantage points from it as the different Gospel writers write about it. So when we read Luke's version of this exact same verse that Jesus said, he adds a couple of words to it that really make it interesting. Because right now, the way Jesus has worded it, we can almost look at it like, well, Jesus, what do you mean? No one knows the Son. Like, who's Jesus talking to? Like, don't they know the Son? Is this this? So we could kind of get or miss the point of what he's getting at. So Luke, in chapter 10, verse 22, he writes, All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son and those whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So we key in on who the Son is, who the Father is. Those those two little words really, really help us out because it, it helps us see that the problem is their misunderstanding their true identity. The problem is that people aren't getting who they're talking about here. They're not getting the full understanding of who the Son and the Father are in all of their glory. You ever been friends with someone that just didn't get you? Like, you know, you're, you're talking to somebody and, and it seems that no matter how you explain yourself, they, they continually misrepresent what you're trying to say and it just, it's kind of frustrating, right? Like, I got a buddy that it doesn't see, it, no matter how I say things, and maybe because they just see me in, in sort of one place or wearing one hat or something like that, it seems like every time I talk, they're continually saying back to me what they think I mean, but it's totally wrong. And I'm like, it's like, you don't even know who I am, right? Does anybody know that? It's really funny. But the inverse of that or the opposite of that is when we have someone that really, really gets us. You know, you're talking to someone and it seems like you don't even have to explain what you're trying to say fully. They just get it. Sarah's like that for me and it's, it's awesome. Jesus and the Father are like that. Their relationship is so incredible. They know everything there is to know about each other because they've been existing eternally with the Holy Spirit 
in perfect community. It's unbelievable how they're able to work synergistically and they know all that. It's an intimate, personal, deep relationship. And now, amazingly, they're willing and desiring to reveal themselves to us in all their glory. And so this is a pivotal truth that we've talked about on a past Sunday, but it bears repeating. There is no religious system, Christianity included, that leads to God. God comes to us. God came to us through his son and introduced himself to us. He is the instigator of the relationship. And Jesus, we learn from this, has all authority as far as who gets to know the Father. And we know later on, and if we read the Gospel of John, to know the Father is eternal life. So it's pretty important to be able to know the Father. Jesus is the one who has hold of that. And in the book of Hebrews, we learn that God spoke first through the prophets, but now he speaks to us through Jesus. Throughout the Bible, we read this story of God's revelation to us, and and I I love the idea of looking at it as the school for souls. Because this is helpful, because if we look at it like that, we see God, through history, taking a people and slowly introducing them to himself and teaching them, little by little, who he is and how he wants them to live. Guiding us along day by day. And now as we learn from Jesus, God is teaching us personally. But the message hasn't changed. God wants us to depend on him and him alone. It's been the same message from the very beginning. And this is the only way that we're truly going to know who the Son and the Father are. Verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Jesus is calling out to anyone and everyone who is weary from trying to work their way to God, try to fight their way, claw their way to God and and somehow earn an audience with him. He's saying that you can find rest in me from all of that. That by learning from him, learning from Jesus, their souls can become content. They can find fulfillment and rest. You see that? School for souls, right? It's how we grow. But why were things this way? Why does... Jesus need to say this. What was the the problem? And the problem was is they were confused spiritually as to how things were supposed to go. Particularly the religious leaders and, and such, when you think of the Pharisees, there was some confusion as to how things were going. Because we see this, if you read previous to this, Jesus going places and being rejected. He has a message about the kingdom, and it's amazing. But nevertheless, he's still being rejected by people. You see, John the Baptist, right before this, in in chapter 11, asking, having to ask, are you the person that we've been waiting for? He's doubting Jesus' credentials, not understanding whether or not he is the right person. Now, why 
Would it be like that? Well, and we've talked about this a lot, but it bears repeating. They were waiting. They were looking for somebody else. They were looking for somebody else. Jesus didn't fit into the box that they had that they'd been trying to stuff God into for centuries. He wasn't coming in on their terms. So they understood their role then to be the keepers of the Word. That they needed to guard it from everybody and adhere to it unwaveringly with no element of relationship with God. They had created for themselves a dead faith. Jesus in Matthew 23, verses 2-4, to talks about this. And he says, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So they're, they're sitting in a place of authority. So you must be careful to do everything that they tell you. So that's kind of amazing to me. I, I read that and I, I do a double take. You're supposed to listen to the Pharisees? Yes, you're supposed to listen to the Pharisees because it, they're, what they're saying is true, he says, but, but do not do what they do for they do not practice what they preach. They don't do that. They, instead, what do they do? They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. So this was the life that they were calling people to. This heavy, cumbersome, burdensome, dead faith. It wasn't how it was supposed to be. Now, I hated high school. Did anyone else dislike high school? It's funny, because I didn't like high school for not the same reasons often people talk about not liking high school, because often it's, it's bullied and hard. And you know what I mean? Like that, that would make high school really, really tough. But those things didn't happen to me. Uh, what did happen to me, though, is I was doing and looking at high school wrong. I was looking at it wrong. Because when I look at high school, I, I think that it's, you know, supposed to, you're supposed to try, more or less, right? I, was to try to at least learn something, find friends, learn, be socialized, learn about life on life's terms, that sort of thing, in a supposedly safe environment. This is, I, I think it's, I'm probably being idealistic, maybe, but this is what high school is supposed to represent. But I was doing that wrong. Instead, I was being called in high school to a dead existence. I was partaking in things like alcohol and drugs and nothing that was life-giving. And the people that were calling out to me and saying, hey, come enjoy this life, they were already dead inside themselves and they just wanted some company. Jesus, on the other hand, is telling whoever will listen that there is something so much better for them. Instead of to the law, and so this goes for the people of that first century that were listening, right? And to us and to all of you sitting here today, instead of to the law or whatever else is burdening you that is just too heavy for you to bear, Jesus is saying, you don't need to carry that load. You can come to me. He's calling people to himself. 
So I think often, whether we want to admit it or not, we like to work for our salvation. We think that there's no such thing as a free lunch, that there's some sort of participation that has to go on that goes above and beyond just love for Jesus in response to him, but instead entails earning or somehow paying him back for some of the things that he's done. But Jesus's way is not only free, friends. It allows us to live as we are meant to live. And because of that, our souls will feel less burdened. Is anyone here like me and, and likes to, to do things for themselves? Has a hard, hard time asking for help with things? It's, a, uh, it's one of the fun parts of being me. But there's a, an episode in, in the Netflix series called The Crown, and it follows the, the British royals, but particularly Queen Elizabeth II. And in a flashback part, her soon to, or her husband to be in the future, Philip, is gone, sent to a boarding school. And while he's there, some family members die in a horrific plane crash. And so he's, he's broken up, obviously. And, and so his way of coping is he decides to go outside. And they had been starting to build a gate for the driveway. And so he decides he's going to take that on himself. So he goes out there and he's in the rain and he's working himself to the bone night and day building this gate. And some of the students look to him and they say, man, we want to go help that guy. And the headmaster says, no, no, no. Not until he asks for help. So he's working, he's working, he's working. And then finally he gets to the point where he's got to take the big iron gate and lift it up on his mornings. And man, does he try. But he just can't lift it up himself. And so finally he comes into the, the lunchroom and he's standing before them and a hush falls over and he's like, I need some help. I need your help. Amazingly, Jesus has modeled for us someone who doesn't avoid the tough life. He, he took life on, but he depended on the Father for strength. He was willing to say to the Father, I need your help. Commentator Craig Blomberg writes, Jesus did not escape the hard life, but he could experience rest and refreshment in its midst. And I'll add, so can you. Christians are not promised freedom from illness or calamity, but they may experience God's sustaining grace so they are not crushed or driven to despair. So this is what it means to take on Jesus' yoke. This image of, of a yoke, it's from agriculture, and it's where you take two animals and you put on the yoke so that they can work together. They can come alongside one another and use each other's strength for their own good. This is the thing. It's not about taking Jesus' yoke. It's not about being lazy. It's not about, huh, enough of this work stuff, right? Jesus, take the wheel! And just be able to wander through life and not have to lift a finger. That Jesus is going to do everything for us. Jesus instead is asking us to depend on him and submit by yoking ourselves to him, to coming alongside him, or better yet, he comes alongside us. And by doing that, we show our dependence on God, but we don't sacrifice our desires, our giftings, our personality. God's given you all of those things to be able to use for his glory. They just work best when you're yoked to him. 
They work best when we're submitting to God. I mean, Caddy is in a really, really fun stage right now. He's just about 17 months, and he doesn't know the word no yet. So that's, that's pretty nice. But he still is starting to exercise his will. Like when he goes over to the blinds, that he knows he's not supposed to touch and puts his hand out and then looks back at us <laughs> and smiles kind of like this and then touches them. Oh, man, it just drives me insane. But for the most part, he, he falls into line, right? Like he's, he's a good little guy and he knows because he knows submitting to us is the right thing to do. He hopefully knows that we have his best interests in mind. Hopefully knows, right? Jesus is asking us to depend on God. If Caddy can depend on someone like me, yikes, <laughs> right? How much more can we depend on someone like God? The idea of goodness, truth, and beauty permeating his person. So finally, we're just going to look at the word easy here for a second. Because I think we, we look at that, the, the, it being easy as if it's kind of the Jesus taking the wheel sort of thing, that it's just going to, life is going to be just sunshine and, and lollipops after that. And it's, it's kind of true, right? Life in God, I, I would say, is better. He, he teaches us how to be better at life. So in that sense, life is better. There's, there's an ease there. Like when you finally get the closet door back on its runner, <laughs> that is true. But the meaning of this word really, it has to do with goodness. It has to do with goodness. Being the best possible option. Superior for a particular purpose or use. This is why Jesus' yoke is as e easy and his burden is light, is because when you take it on, you begin to live as you are meant to live, as you are created to live. This is what God wants you, or why God wants you to depend on him. Because you are created to depend on him. You're doing what you're created to do. And so instead of keeping you at arm's length, God is calling out to you with arms wide open like a good father should. He's saying ditch the Lone Ranger Act. You don't need to, you don't need to do that by yourself. Come to me. I love you. Learn from me and experience the awe and wonder of a life lived to its true potential. Now, I'm not going to stand here and, and tell you this is easy and that I've, I've got it all figured out because it's, this is a lifelong pursuit. But what I can say is that Jesus died and, it, and he died in order to make this possible in the first place for us. And, and, and that means that the hardest part, the part that now allows us to be able to come boldly before him is done. It's been accomplished. It's finished. So pray. So, so read your Bible. So hang out with people that have been on this walk maybe longer than you and learn from them. This is how we learn from Jesus. This is how Jesus pours into our life and teaches us. And don't ever think for a second that God doesn't have time for you or doesn't care about you. There's never in a moment that 
in this life that God's not waiting for you. Never a moment where he's too busy. Never a moment where he doesn't want to show you love. Come to Jesus, all you who are weary, and he will, he will give you rest. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, all of that you do for us. Thank you for this day and for the great promises that you have to never leave us, never abandon us, and to always provide us with this rest in you. You're a glorious good Father, and we praise you for that today. In your name, amen.